Welcome to Curbside Consult Statistical Review, where we break down study design and statistical methods in studies published in the NEJM. I'm Amanda Fernandez, one of this year's editorial fellows at the New England Journal of Medicine. If you tuned into our last episode of Curbside Consults, I discussed the literature behind VTEN thromboprophylaxis in ambulatory patients with cancer with Dr. Jean Connors. We had focused on two papers recently published in the NEJM looking at the use of direct oral coagulants in these patients. If you didn't have a chance to listen to the Curbside Consult episode with Dr. Connors, that's no problem. We will be summarized in the relevant discussion while we review our statistical topic. For this episode, we will be discussing power and the factors that influence power. Joining us in discussion is Dave Harrington, Emeritus Professor of Biostatistics at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome to our podcast, Dave. We're excited to have you. Thank you, Amanda. So, Dave, let's just get right into it. In our last podcast, we discussed the AVERT trial. And the AVERT trial was a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind clinical trial, which found that apixaban resulted in significantly lower rates of VTE than placebo in intermediate to high-risk ambulatory patients with cancer who were starting chemotherapy. In contrast, we also published the Cassini trial, which looked at rivaroxaban, another direct oral anticoagulant, which did not result in significantly lower incidence of VTE or death in these uh, patients. So in a class of medications that are supposed to work similarly, why did one study show a statistical difference and another not show a difference? Well, one never knows the answer to that for sure, but there are two strong possibilities here. Uh, Despite the fact that the two medications come from the same class, one may simply be ineffective and not show an effect. But there may be issues with the design of the study. The study may have been poorly designed, used imprecise measurements, or because the study was not powered properly. Okay, so that transitions really well into our topic for this podcast. What is power? Power is a very difficult concept. It's the probability of rejecting the null hypothesis of no treatment effect or the probability of finding a difference when one truly exists. Simply put, it's the likelihood of detecting an effect when an effect is there and is related to the probability of a false negative, that is, the probability of not finding a statistically significant difference when a treatment is effective. This probability is sometimes called a type 2 or beta error. Power is 1 minus the probability of a beta error. A sample size for a study is typically set so that the study has adequate power to detect a clinically important treatment effect and is consistent with the restrictions that come from ethical, cost, and time considerations for a trial. If the sample size is too small, one may not be able to detect an important existing effect, whereas sample sizes that are too large may waste time, resources, money, and more importantly, expose patients to uh, a novel agent unnecessarily. Okay. Now, in the VERT trial, they had initially hypothesized that a pixaban would be superior to placebo. And I'm just going to read up a section that they mentioned in the statistical analysis. They talked that they would find a relative difference of at least 64% in this rate of the primary outcome at a two-sided alpha level of 0.05 and a power of 80%. They calculated a sample size of 574 patients, which would be necessary to see this effect with the Pixaban. The Cassini trial had a power of 90%. Uh, When we've looked at a lot of trials, um, I noticed that most of them use 80%. Why is power conventionally set at 80%? Well, setting power precisely is a very uh, difficult question. It's a bit of an art. But traditionally, the FDA has required at least 80% power for well-controlled trials. 
So most studies that are done by academic centers and published in journals like the New England Journal will have power of at least 80%. It may be particularly important to detect a difference if it's there, and so sometimes power is set higher at 90%, but that will, of course, result in a larger sample size, a more expensive trial, and one that will take longer to do. Okay. Maybe let's just take a step back and, for our listeners, explain what is, you know, when we say a power is set at 80%, what do we mean by that? So what we mean is that once the trial has been in the design stage and the investigators have decided what level of significance is important for them, typically 0.05 at the two-sided level, but sometimes something like 0.01, then they have to decide, all right, for a particular difference here, we want to make the sample size large enough so that we will be reasonably certain of declaring a statistically significant result. So a power of 80% means that if there truly was a 64% reduction here, then the trial would be 80% likely to find that or to get a significant result. Okay. So that would mean that you would have a 20% chance of missing that result. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. What are some factors that influence power? Well, there are several things that influence power. Uh, One, of course, that everybody knows about is sample size. So the larger the size of a study, the more patients who are enrolled, the higher the power. That makes a lot of sense because, in fact, if you had the option to do a study that was infinitely large, then you would be infinitely certain of seeing a difference. But other things affect things as uh, power as well. One is, for instance, uh, the underlying variability in the population. If the measurement that's important to detect outcome is highly variable, then you need more patients on the study to get a precise measure of that. There are other things that affect power while a study is ongoing, such as attrition. If there is attrition in the study, then power goes down because effectively the sample size goes down. Okay. You mentioned variability is one of the factors that influence power. Where do we get that information about variability when we're designing the study? So trial designers, whenever possible, use data from previous studies to try to anticipate how the particular measurements will be taken and how precise they will be in the study at hand, the one that they are designing. So hopefully there are prior data which show how variable the outcome response was. So for instance, one might say that you know, a particular therapy might yield a median survival of two years. But it might be highly variable, in which case there are many patients whose survival was much less and some whose survival was much more than that median. In other instances, if the drug is uh, very, very precisely tuned, you may, may have most patients having a survival that's right near the median. So in that second case, you'd need a smaller study because you have measurements that are less variable. This is likely beyond the scope of a podcast, but is there a standard formula that statisticians use to calculate power? So the calculation of power depends upon uh, the statistic that will be used, the type of outcome variables. Power calculations with event time data, where there is censoring, are different than power calculations with response data, where you're simply counting the number of responders to a therapy. Power calculations might depend upon attrition and the anticipated attrition, that might depend upon the level of censoring. So there are lots of variations. Right. Now, a statistician will tell you that the formulas for power are all very similar. And at the math level, they're very similar. Okay. But for someone who's not an expert, they look very different. Fortunately, there's lots of software for calculating power. And so none of us remember the formulas now. This just basically sounds very complicated. <laughs> now, moving on to the Cassini trial, 
they had assumed an absolute difference in the event rates of 8.5 percentage points between the two groups, which were the rivaroxaban and then the placebo group. And they had calculated a sample size of 700 patients to detect a relative risk that was 58.6% lower in favor of rivaroxaban for lowering the incidence of VTE in patients with cancer. The planned sample size was revised during the trial due to the higher withdrawal rate um, of patients, and the sample size was revised to 800 patients from 700 patients. How long after a trial is started can you change your sample size? Can you do a post hoc power calculation? You can, uh, although most people are reluctant to do it because it does sometimes threaten the integrity of the trial. In the example of the Cassini trial, they had little choice, actually. Because of the attrition, the large attrition, they simply weren't going to get the sample size that they wanted initially. So their revised power calculations were really more a way of predicting what's the likelihood that this trial will turn out positive given that we're facing a smaller sample size than we had hoped. There are other reasons that do allow changes in sample size. One is data become available from external trials that say this agent works, it appears to work, but perhaps not quite as well as you thought, so you may want to detect a smaller difference, in which case investigators may increase their sample size mm-hmm. to get power for a smaller difference. Uh, there may be other things that are happening, such as poor enrollment, and so slower enrollment, so you may revise power calculations based on that, or baseline event rates are either much more rapid or much slower than you anticipated. Remember that when you do a power calculation at the beginning of a study, it's a prediction of how the study will turn out, and they often don't turn out precisely the way you anticipated. Okay. So the simple answer to the question is that you can change the sample size during the trial, but not so much after the trial. Well, after the trial, it's not a relevant question, right? Because after the trial, the study has closed, so you can't change the sample size. But during the trial, you can, under those restricted situations that I described, you can't change it for simply capricious reasons because you decided you wanted to have a larger trial. You have to have a sound scientific reason to change the sample size during the course of a trial. Okay. Um, Let's work through the results in the Cassini trial. So in the Cassini trial, they had 841 patients at the end who underwent randomization. And the primary endpoint of incidence of VT occurred in 6% of patients in the rivaroxaban group compared to 8.8% in the placebo group. Here, the hazard ratio was 0.66 with a 95% confidence interval that went from 0.4 to 1.09. This was found to be not significant with a p-value of 0.10. They also did a per-protocol analysis, and here, the uh, primary endpoint occurred in 2.6% of patients in the rivaroxaban group compared to 6.4% in the placebo group. The hazard ratio here is 0.40, and the 95% confidence interval spans from 0.2 to 0.8. How do we interpret these results? So a per-protocol analysis is one that is based on data for the patients who actually received the treatment at hand. Now, so this is a study with lots of nuances and trying to interpret it. Let's talk first about the initial analysis that was done in the intent-to-treat population that achieved the non-significant result. So that one had a p-value of 0.1, but actually a quite striking hazard ratio of 0.66. Problem was that the study didn't have enough sample size, the statistician would say enough precision, to measure that difference precisely. And that's why the result is non-significant. 
You can tell that by looking at the confidence interval. The confidence interval for the hazard ratio goes from 0.4 to 1.09. That means that any reduction in risk that can range anywhere from as much as a 50% reduction to an 8 or 9% increase is consistent with the data. And so the data simply didn't measure precisely enough what the relative risk was in order to be sure that there was a true effect here. Now, the per-protocol analysis, which turns out slightly differently, is based on the patients who actually received the therapy. And that can be very difficult to interpret because, it, in fact, it involves a selection of patients. Right. And there are instances where the patients who are able to tolerate therapy are a different subpopulation of the study population. They may mm -hmm. be healthier. They may be more robust. And so, in fact, it's not really an analysis that is protected by the balance that's ensured by randomization. Right. It's useful because, to me, this would suggest that while the trial was negative, there may well be a signal here, but it will have to be verified in a second randomized trial. Thank you so much, Dave. Those were really useful uh, pointers for understanding power. Can you give us a few takeaway points or uh, summarize for us the main things you want our listeners to take to learn about power? Well, it's important when someone reads the report of a trial to read the design as summarized in the method section to decide whether the trial was adequately powered. The adequate power of the trial really has two pieces of information. First, did the investigators think through in advance what they anticipated and did they set design goals which were achievable? The other is that it sometimes can be a clue, as it was in the Cassini trial, that there may be a result which you see that looks intriguing but may not be measured precisely enough. Another takeaway is that uh, power is something that is calculated before a study is done, so it's very relevant during the design stage. When a study is completed, power has more academic value than practical value in the sense that it's a good indicator of how well the study was designed, but post hoc, since a power is a probability, an event that's already happened, the study has either achieved a result or not, the probability associated with power is no longer interpretable. After a study is completed, the best thing to look at is the width of the confidence intervals and the point estimates. And that's a very good indicator of how precisely the study measured outcome. Thank you so much, Dave, for chatting with us today on statistical power. Let's just summarize what we've briefly discussed. First, power is the probability of rejecting the null hypothesis. Simply put, it is the probability of finding a difference when one truly exists when you are conducting a study. This probability is calculated before a trial starts, and it is often set at 80%. The higher the power, the greater the sample size that will be needed. Once a study is done, the widths of the confidence interval are a better summary of the precision in a study. There's a lot more to cover with power, but we will delve into these further in future episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode on power. A big thank you to Dr. Dave Harrington, our statistical editor here at the NEJM. I'd also like to thank our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, which includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to my co-editorial fellows, Dr. Angela Chen and Dr. Angela Castellanos, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. Opie Hammondvik. Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we want your feedback. Please email us at resident360.nejm.org. I'm Dr. Amanda Fernandez, this year's Editorial Fellow at the NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.